17 through 27. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son, and he said it, It should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. Your mount, you mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For the, there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you with luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant you have been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for bringing us here uh, to gather as your people to worship you, the true and mighty God. We pray that you would be with Mark as he preaches from your word now. Pray that you would give him your words and your truth to share and that you would strengthen us to obey you and glorify you as we go out from this place today. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. We are continuing through, continuing through 2 Samuel. Last week we looked at uh, the... Uh, Amalekite who came and to David's camp to announce that Saul and Jonathan had been killed. Um, and in doing so, the Amalekite forfeited his own life. In his mind, he thought that they would put him in David's good favor because David is the next in line. He's the, most people usually think he's the enemy of God, he's, he's, or uh, of Saul. They're, they're opposed to each other. Constantly, Saul was trying to kill David, and David was running away. And so he figured David's going to be happy to hear about this. And not only that, but he brings the crown and the armlet of Saul to give to David. And he tells this story, I killed Saul because Saul asked me to. And David said, your life, your blood is on your own head. And he ordered him executed because if the story was true, which we know isn't because we've read 1 Samuel 31, where Saul asked his armor bearer, kill me because the Philistines are about to come upon me. His armor bearer refused, and so Saul took his own life. So somehow this Amalekite comes across Saul's body, thinks, oh, I can get the armlet and the crown, give it to David, and David's going to be happy about this. But again, instead, it only caused him to forfeit, forfeit his own life. Because even David, who is the anointed king, would not touch Saul, who was the current anointed king, if that makes sense. 
In other words, David, even though he was anointed king of the Lord, he waited for God to take care of Saul rather than doing what normally happens in kingdoms um, when you have two rivals. One rises up, kills the other, and takes the throne. David did not want that to happen. He says, I'm your anointed king, but I'm going to let you move, and then I'm going to go. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. But what this does now with Saul and Jonathan dead, David has yet to take the throne. It puts him in an interesting position. He mourns over the death of Saul and Jonathan, and yet he is also the anointed, anointed by God to be the next king of Israel. So what is he supposed to do? And this lament, which Josh just read, is filled with his personal pain in losing the king and his brother, Jonathan, and yet also he has to think of Israel's political future. He is the rightful anointed king, but he seems to be hesitant to take the throne and force Israel to accept him as their king. And yet David needs to move forward in assuming the throne because he is the rightful king. And let's be honest, right now there's nobody to take his place. And we'll see in the next chapter how that kind of shifts and changes. And and Abner, the commander of Saul's army, then puts one of Saul's kids in in place as king and that creates a civil war and all that we'll get there let's not deal with that right now but right this this lament david's lament accomplishes two things first it's his first step toward taking the throne and second it's a vivid expression of his deep and personal grief he is not happy that saul died he's not happy that jonathan was killed. Um, So let's start there first. His personal grief, his lament is filled with positive expressions of Saul and Jonathan. He calls them Israel's glory. He describes them as mighty warriors, beloved and lovely, united in life as they were in death, as providers of blessing for the people of Israel. And these are all strange words to come from a man who was co- whose life was constantly in danger because of Saul. Saul just wanted the man dead. And here's David expressing heartfelt grief at the death of Saul. He seems in this lament to be overstating Saul's character. But If that is true, then what would be the point of David telling everyone how many times Saul had wronged him? Like, why doesn't David just be honest and say, well, you know what? Saul got his comeuppance because you know how many times he tried to kill me? That would not create joy and love in the people of Israel. Their king is dead. David should be lamenting. It would only overshadow, if he said that, it would only overshadow the grief that he and the nation of Israel were experiencing. But interesting enough, he actually is not overstating Saul's character. And you say, well, wait, how do you, how do you say that, Mark? Did you not read 1 Samuel? Saul was a mess. And that's true. Saul was a sinful and flawed king for sure, but he's also the Lord's anointed, which is why the Amalekite was put to death for killing the Lord's anointed. Not because he didn't kill the man because, or have the man executed because Saul was a perfect man 
or sinless or never made a mistake. It was only because he was the anointed king of of the Lord. David reminds, well, let's say that Saul and Jonathan, in speaking of Saul and Jonathan in this way, he's saying they were the embodiments of the glory and power and honor of Israel. They were, in essence, the spokesperson of the Lord for the people of Israel. They went out into battle at the head of the army, leading the army of the people. They cared for the people, uh, for the Lord's people. And David reminds Israel of the might and power of Saul and Jonathan's military prowess. Now this, verse 22, I really wrestled with this. I was trying to figure out what in the world does this mean? From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty. Like, really? What in the world does that mean? The bow of Jonathan turned not back, the sword of Saul returned not empty. Well, as commanded by the Lord, Saul led the army of Israel to battle their their enemies, battles that he was actually largely successful in winning. He was a really good military leader, mostly because he had his son Jonathan, but he still won nonetheless. Saul and Jonathan, they fought side by side in these battles. They were united in death as much as they were in life. Remember, if we remember back, Jonathan found out Saul hated David and wanted David killed. And David and, and Jonathan were knit at the soul, it says. We'll talk about that in a second. They were brothers. And yet, Jonathan gave up his right to the throne as the rightful heir to the throne, gave it to David, and said, you are the rightful king. You are the one who's going to take the throne. And yet, Jonathan never left his father's side, even through all of it. He was united with his father. And as king, Saul blessed his people. They were cared for and provided for in abundance. That's verse 24. They had everything that they needed. And then he says, how mighty, how, how the mighty have fallen in battle. Israel's weapons against their enemies have perished. What's going to happen now? The king is dead. But David's most painful and grievous loss was that of Jonathan. His words in verse 26 tell of their deep and personal relationship. And unfortunately, I feel the need to explain this. We have to stop and we have to restate a mistake that many make when they read Scripture. Off too, all too often, we take the words of the Bible and we immediately read them through our own social and political lens. We bring it back to our life and what our society says. What does this mean? Now, these words today, without any context of the book, without any context of the historical setting, would be taken as an expression of a homosexual relationship between David and Jonathan. I mean, after all, why else would David call Jonathan's love very pleasant, extraordinary, and surpassing that of women, right? It seems pretty obvious. If you read it through our own modern lens, and yes, I'm using that in a negative way, (laughs) that would be a wrong interpretation. 
the depth and love of the relationship between men who have fought side by side in battle with their lives on the line cannot be overstated. There is a connection between brothers at arms that surpasses marriage, that surpasses friendship. There's just, there is a, if you've ever, have a conversation with, I have never been in battle. Praise the Lord Jesus. But if you've ever talked to somebody who has, there is a deep, connected relationship that occurs between brothers at arms. And even more importantly, the idea of a homosexual relationship would actually be abhorrent to David and Jonathan and the author of Samuel because such a relationship is expressly forbidden by God and His law. That's Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. So to promote such a relationship is actually a direct violation of God's law, and it would never happen. That would never happen. And so David and Jonathan were like brothers who deeply loved one another in a way only fellow men at arms can understand. There's no sexual relationship here, only deeply personal love for one another. David has lost a brother whose soul was knit to his own. You know what that means? If you're, okay, how many people knit here? I don't. There's, nobody knits? Somebody, yeah, yeah, don't be ashamed, Kate. Come on, raise your hand. I don't know much about knitting, but I do know that what happens when you knit, you're weaving the threads together to create something. You, it's hard to, you have to, you have to cut them to pull them apart, right? It creates this weave and this strong, this strong fabric to make a sweater or whatever you want to make out of it. It's this deep and intimate interwoven life that Jonathan and David had to the point where 1 Samuel 18 describes it as David loved Jonathan as he loved his own soul. That is a deep personal friendship, not an acquaintance and not in any sexual manner whatsoever. And to hear the death of his brother, how painful that must have been to him to lose someone so close and in such a way. So David's had this loss. He's lamenting his own personal grief, but Israel has also lost a king. It's, it's lost its leader. It's lost its anointed king of the Lord. And David uses this lament to, to show his kingly leadership. He's, he's using it to move into, um, into position as king. He doesn't suddenly grab the throne. It's a slow process. Now, we'll talk about this more in the future, but David actually is king of Judah for seven years before he assumes the united country of, uh, united nation of, of Israel. He takes seven years, or maybe a better way to say it's God takes seven years to enthrone him. He takes his time, and this is, this is the first step, this lament David is the Lord's anointed king, and it's only a matter of time before he takes the throne. David knows that, but he takes a path which is unexpected for an heir apparent. He doesn't make it about him. 
He doesn't take matters into his own hands, which is how he's handled this whole situation all the way through 1 Samuel. David is the epitome of patiently waiting for God to move and then moving with God rather than moving and asking God to bless his own agenda. David doesn't walk in with the army, take the throne and say, okay, now God bless me. And we'll see this. He actually asks God, what do I do next? He says that in chapter two, the very next chapter, what do you want me to do? I know I got to move forward, but what are you asking me to do, to do, Lord? And so just as David didn't kill Saul to take the throne for himself, he uses this lament to reveal three things of his kingly leadership. First, he commands the lament to be taught to the people of Judah. Now, it's interesting that Israel isn't mentioned, and that should be a a flag to us. It should be one of those like, ha, this is really weird. Why doesn't he say it should be taught to all of Israel? And we'll see this again next week. Chapter 2 begins with David actually becoming, uh, being anointed the king of Judah. And this lament is probably, well, it's spoken by David at the hearing of the death of Saul and Jonathan, but it was taught to the people of Judah after his anointing. Otherwise, why would he be able to command that it be taught to Judah if not, uh, and not Israel as a whole if he wasn't established as the king of Judah at that time? So David wants the people of Judah to see that he did not take the throne by force, that he was grieving over the death of Saul and Jonathan as much, if not more so, than anyone in Israel. And this is why he uses the phrase, how the mighty have fallen. It's repeated three times. David wanted the people to know how he viewed Saul and Jonathan and that they died in battle, not at his hands which exonerates him from being accused of murder, but it also points to the fact that God's the one who took their life. Second, he addresses the grief over the public shame Israel has experienced through the death of their king. David pleads that the news not be heard in the streets of the Philistines and that the Philistine women would not rejoice over Israel's shame. But let's be honest, you read that and you go, so is this saying that it wasn't heard in the streets of the Philistines? Well, no, it was. He must have known, David must have known, news like this doesn't stay quiet. Even in those days, the news would flow through the countryside very, very quickly and celebrations in the streets of the Philistines were inevitable. And in calling them uncircumcised, he's pointing out that their God, Dagon, was going to get the credit, not Yahweh. And we all know from 1 Samuel that Saul's death was brought by God because of Saul's disobedience of of God's commands. We know that God is the one who did it. And Saul's death was both a military and a religious humiliation for the nation of Israel. And everyone saw it. David is pointing out the grief that Saul's actions, his sin and his death, has brought upon the entire nation of Israel. And then ultimately the shame that's brought upon God himself in his name. And so third, third, that would be two, third. David speaks of Mount Gilboa, that's the site of the battle. 
where Saul and Jonathan die. David curses the mountain. He asks that it would no longer receive rain to yield fruitful crops as offerings to the Lord. The barrenness of those mountains would be a perpetual reminder to the nation of their great loss on that mountain. But it would also be a reminder of Saul's disobedience. It would be a reminder that the faithfulness of the Lord's anointed affects not only him and his son, but it affects the army, it affects the people, it affects the reputation of Israel, and it affects the reputation of God himself. All of this, this lament is used. It's it's used personally for him to express himself, but it's also used politically. It's a song to remind the people of who David is, what happened to Saul, a reminder of the, the sin of Saul and the consequences for that. See, it's a good reminder for us that both Saul and David, they were imperfect and flawed kings. I mean, all we're going to have to do is go through the the book of 2 Samuel. We'll find out very, very quickly, Saul's just as imperfect, David is just as imperfect as Saul. The big difference is Saul didn't repent until he absolutely needed to because he wanted the people to be happy. David, as soon as uh, his sin is revealed, repents. But that doesn't mean he doesn't face the consequences of those sins. David and Saul were but a type. They were a shadow of the great king to come. Like Saul, the true anointed king would die in a battle against the enemies of God's people. Like Saul, his death would be lamented by those who loved him. But where Saul was placed in the ground to stay, this king would be raised to life three days after his death, soundly and eternally defeating the enemies of God's people. And like David, he is the Lord's anointed king who eventually assumed his throne in the days after his resurrection. Resurrection, Not, a, not an earthly home, not an earthly throne, but one at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And like Mount Geboa, which was a perpetual reminder to God's people of their public shame, military and religiously. It was a public reminder of of their king's sinfulness. And so the crown is, or the cross, is a perpetual reminder of Christ's public shame. It's a reminder of his sinlessness. It's a reminder of his resurrection from the dead causes people to be made new, to be regenerate, to be reborn from fallen and sinful to saved and holy by the indwelling of God himself through the Holy Spirit. Saul and David, the life of Saul and David, the mistakes and even the good things of Saul and David were all to point us as God's people to the true anointed king, Jesus Christ. Where Saul and David failed where David need to, needed to politically work his way through and God worked through him slowly seven years on the throne of Judah before taking the throne of all of Israel. Jesus didn't have to wait seven years. If you want to say he had to wait at all, he had to wait three days. And he assumed the throne that is rightfully his. 
And through his reign, through his death, like Saul, the true anointed king comes to the throne, and like David, he saves his people. When we gather together to this table right here, this communion table, it points, it points us to Christ. It is a reminder of those of us who are saved by His grace through faith, not by any works of our own, that Christ did all that was necessary for our salvation upon the cross, where Saul and David failed. Christ succeeded. It is a sign to those who have yet believed that He is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, for no one is able to come to the Father except through Him. Jesus says that in the New Testament. As the true anointed King, Christ didn't die, or Christ died not for any sin of His own. Saul died for his sin. Christ died for whose sin? Mine, yours. He died for the sins of those who would believe in and submit to his rule as king. But he would also be raised from the dead, saving, leading, protecting, and caring for his people, just as the anointed king is meant to. His de- in his death, it would seem that the Almighty had fallen. I mean, his disciples thought that. How can this be? I thought he was the Messiah. Now he's dead and he's buried in a tomb. What are we supposed to do? They were afraid. They scattered. They they ran. They didn't know what the future was going to hold. The Messiah has fallen. But three days later, he rose from the grave and to the dismay of his enemies and to the joy of his people. He lived. The cross, which was once seen as a curse, because it was a curse, those who hang upon the tree are cursed by God, the Old Testament says, is now seen by God's people, not as a curse, but a blessing. For through his death, we who are spiritually reborn are given eternal life. No cross, no life. But no lament is needed. We don't don't lament the death of Christ. If we lament, it's the fact that my sin put him there. But we don't lament that he went because through him going, we are blessed and we are saved. And so we, as God's people, find only joy. We, we mourn and lament our own sin, but we, we scream with joy that God would provide a way for sinners such as me to enter his presence for all eternity. Why would he do such a thing? Why would, why would the true anointed king willingly give up his life to save me? And he did it when I was still his enemy. Why would he do that? Well, first and foremost, because his father commanded it and willed it. And secondly, because 
of his great love that he has for us. We are his people, and he willingly gave his life for me, paying the price, paying the debt that I owed for the wrath of God for my sins. And so when we go to the table here in, a, in just a minute, use this time as God's people to remember with joy the works and the love of the true anointed King, Jesus Christ. Give Him the glory, honor, and praise that He rightly deserves. If there's sin in your life, confess it. And then immediately afterwards, praise the Lord that He doesn't hold it against you. That's beautiful and joy-filling that we as God's people can come willingly, without shame, not because of us, but because of Him. And so use this time when we take the cup and the bread, contemplate, think through, and give glory to God who saved you. Now that being said, if you have not given your life to Christ, if you, if you do not believe, if you are striving in your own good works to save you, we're not asking you to be sinless and perfect. Although if you have sin, again, confess it before taking this, this meal together. But we ask if you are not a believer, if you have not given your life over to Christ, if He has not saved you, if He's not redeemed you, if He has not changed you and made you reborn from sinful to holy by His works, then we ask that you refrain. We take this seriously. This is a time of joy for us that if you have never experienced the salvation of Christ, you will never understand. This is not a ritual. This is not a, a grace-filled thing that if I take it, then I'm good for the rest of the week. That would be really bad because we only do it every three weeks. This is a time for us to remember. As you'll hear my words in just a second, he stood before his disciples and said, do this in remembrance of me. Remember what I did for you. Remember what I took upon myself to save you and do it with joy and give me the glory that I so rightly deserve. So when you're ready, go ahead, grab the cup, grab the bread, come back to the seat, your seat, and then together as a family of God, you don't have to be a member of the church, to be a member of the family of God. We will take it together as a family and together give him the glory that he deserves, the praise and honor that he deserves. Amen? Amen. So come when you are ready.